Our study of Matthew has been divided into two parts. Part one ended with Matthew 16, and it did so on a very serious note. Peter had identified Jesus as the Messiah, but could not absorb the news that this anointed one of God would suffer and die. And certainly, Peter and the others would have had a very hard time accepting that carrying their own crosses would wed them to the cross and suffering of Jesus. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What strikes me as we start part two of our study of the Gospel of Matthew is the way Matthew counterbalances the heaviness of the Passion prediction with the glory of the Transfiguration. Chapter 17 begins with this scene. Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There is some scholarly debate about which mountain Jesus ascended with his followers. Was it Mount Tabor or the higher and mostly snow-covered Mount Hermon? Today, if you are a pilgrim in the Holy Land, you will visit Mount Tabor and its beautiful Church of the Transfiguration, sitting atop the mountain and looking out over the Jezreel Valley and across to the important summits of Mounts Carmel, Gilboa, and Hermon. Whichever location, it is significant that God's revelation takes place on a mountain, as it did centuries earlier when Moses ascended Mount Sinai, and a little later when the prophet Elijah bore witness to God on Mount Carmel. In this gospel account, Peter, James, and John share in a vision of divinity not unlike that of Moses and Elijah. Jesus is transfigured before them. The word transfigure means to change shape. Not only does Jesus' appearance change shape before them, but Jesus' life will change shape as he journeys toward Jerusalem. The lives of his followers will change shape as well. Their dreams and hopes will take on the shape of the kingdom Jesus proclaims. There's a paradox that lies at the very heart of Christianity, a paradox that Jesus tries to describe in the predictions of his passion and resurrection. And that is this, that the cross of suffering leads to glorification. Or to put it another way, within the tomb lies new life. The transfiguration of Jesus brings together these two seemingly opposite realities, and it brings together two great figures of Israel's salvation story as well. The three disciples that Jesus has with him see not only a transfigured Jesus. With Jesus, they also see Moses, who is symbolic of the law that God gave Israel at Sinai. And they see Elijah, who is symbolic of the prophetic call to return to God. In Jesus, the promises to Israel are complete. Unlike Mark's account, where Jesus speaks to Moses and to Elijah about his passage to Jerusalem, Matthew allows the union of all these three great figures of faith to speak for itself. That's really the beauty of great symbols. They speak for themselves. I often wonder how I might react to such a revelation of God's promises being fulfilled. Would I be like Peter, wanting to set up tents and prolong the experience, hoping somehow to stay in touch with that deep sense of presence, making it more permanent? I've learned that those graced moments, what we sometimes even refer to as mountaintop experiences, really cannot be recreated or captured. But they do serve to bolster us when the ordinariness of everyday life is all too real. 
These experiences are our glimpses of glory. I can't help but think that Jesus is giving Peter, James, and John that same kind of touchstone experience. He takes them out of the routine for a time of glory that will forever give meaning to the routine that they will re-enter. You also recall that up on the mountain, the voice of God speaks from the cloud, and that voice alerts us to at least two insights. First, as Jesus prepares to journey to Jerusalem for the end of his earthly ministry, God's voice recalls the baptism of Jesus at the start of his earthly ministry. In both instances, God named Jesus his beloved son. And secondly, we are told that God's voice causes the disciples to be overcome with fear. Perhaps they glimpse for the first time that Jesus is more than they imagined, even after being with him as he ministered throughout Galilee. The voice of God gives them a very healthy sense of awe. In Matthew's gospel, belief is deeply connected to understanding. And so we see Jesus returning to his role as teacher in chapter 17, helping his followers understand that the Son of Man will have to endure suffering and even predicting it a second time. The disciples begin to understand that the Messiah's glory is not about political or even religious power as they once probably hoped and believed. They are constantly growing in their understanding of Jesus and in their understanding of what it will mean to follow him as a people and as individuals. They, like most of us, are a work in progress. And the upcoming stories in this lesson are examples of that struggle to mature. One such story is that of the boy possessed by demons. It's found in chapter 17, verses 14 to 21. The boy's healing by Jesus is significant just as it stands. But the way the story is told focuses on the disciples' timidity and their lack of trust that caused the disciples to fail in their attempt to heal him. They are chastised by Jesus, who earlier had taught them that even a small amount of faith, the size of a little mustard seed, can work wonders. The timidity of the disciples is contrasted by the next public exchange, where Peter speaks out boldly for Jesus about the temple tax. Now, he didn't seem to understand why Jesus paid the tax, but he defended Jesus nonetheless. And that becomes a teaching moment for Jesus with his followers. It was customary for all male Jews over the age of 19 to pay the tax which supported the upkeep of the temple. Even though the Son of God is not obligated to pay for his father's house, Jesus does not want to make himself exempt as the priests and the rabbis often did. The contrast that Matthew draws in these two stories causes me to reflect on the tensions that exist in my own life and in my own desire to follow Jesus faithfully. I speak pretty boldly about what I believe are the values of the kingdom of God. I show up at vigils on the nights of execution in our state. I teach with enthusiasm and conviction. However, I also know that I am timid in many ways, sometimes afraid to risk a personal investment in my own community or reluctant to commit myself to a worthwhile project that might not be well-tested and could involve sacrificing my time with few results. Each of us lives as did the first disciples, with Jesus, but not completely sure what he's about, with Jesus, but not quite sure that we can live up to the demands of discipleship. We are ourselves a work in progress. 
And that progress is prompted and made possible by the grace that God freely gives us. Chapter 18 contains the fourth discourse of Matthew's gospel, this one dealing primarily with order and care within the Christian community. There are two major sections. One is about caring for the little ones, the innocents, and the other is about caring for the sinful ones. Each section uses a parable to illustrate the type of care needed to foster healthy relationships in a community. If it seems that the disciples of Jesus took a step forward with the transfiguration, now they take a couple of steps backward by asking who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Maybe the desire to be the best, the biggest, and the greatest is not all that new. Their question reveals that they still don't seem to quite get it. What Jesus desires is for his followers to demonstrate a radical other-centeredness. They and we are encouraged to become like little children, and not in the romantic, idealized sense that would put aside responsibility, but in children's vulnerability and their total dependence on others. Disciples of Jesus are to trust completely in the loving care of God, as children must trust in others for their survival and quality of life. Jesus will tell his followers in chapter 19, when the children come to him for his blessing, that it is to just such as these that the kingdom belongs, radically dependent, totally trusting. Jesus uses his teaching about becoming childlike to launch into a discussion of responsible care for those he calls the little ones in the community. These are the weak ones who can be led astray, with serious consequences for those in leadership. He could be talking about those who have left the believing community already for whatever reason, or those within the community who have lost a sense of direction. To illustrate the kind of relationship needed between those who are weak and those in leadership who are strong, Jesus uses the parable of the lost sheep. This is serious business. Jesus recommends eradicating leaders who lead others astray or neglect those who have left. On the other hand, those who seek out the weak and straying are like the shepherd who searches out the lost sheep and rejoices if the animal is found. I think we should have little trouble relating these lessons to current events in our church, especially around the issue of clergy sex abuse and the cover-up of the same. The mishandling of these matters and the gross neglect of those who have been abused has pushed many people to the edges of our communities or even away entirely. Trust has been broken, and it is the job of those who are strong in faith to search out those who have been pushed away or chosen to leave. Do we make opportunities to listen to those who are hurting or confused or angry? Do we offer a place of belonging and care? Do we do the hard work of eradicating the source of scandal that has pushed people away or seriously damaged them personally? And what does Jesus say about sinners? And that includes all of us, by the way. How is the church to maintain order according to Matthew 18? First of all, the goal when working with someone who has hurt the community or divided it is to seek reconciliation first and foremost. Expulsion is a last resort. The person who sins or is divisive in the community should be dealt with honestly and consistently with the goal of helping him or her to own their behavior and understand its impact on the community. 
If the behavior that is divisive or scandalous continues, he or she is asked to leave. Note that in this teaching in Matthew 18, there is no mention of hierarchical figures. Rather, the church addresses these situations together as a body. And then comes that wonderful passage beginning in verse 21 of chapter 18 where Peter asks Jesus how often he must forgive. And the answer is an overwhelming 77 times. Jesus makes it clear that since divine mercy is without limits, our forgiveness of others should be the same. He uses the parable of the man whose debt to the king is so huge, exorbitant even, that he could never repay it. The king forgives the servant's debt because he is moved with pity or compassion or mercy, depending on which translation you are using. These various translations of the Greek word don't quite capture the intense gut reaction that the king must have experienced. For example, our use of the word pity today seems to tap into the emotional reaction, but not the sense of being moved to do something. We can pity a person's situation from a distance and never take action. Compassion and mercy, it seems to me, tend to get to this a bit better. The point is that this king moved from feeling to action, and that's the challenge for us as well. But the parable is far from complete without the twist that really teaches the lesson. This same man whose large debt was forgiven failed to show his own debtor the same compassion. Should you not have had pity on your fellow servant as I had pity on you? Then in anger, his master handed him over to the torturers until he should pay back the whole debt. So will my heavenly father do to you unless each of you forgives his brother from his heart. Several thoughts occur to me. First of all, sin, of course, is our huge debt, our hopeless situation that can never be remedied or redeemed without the freely given mercy of God. Secondly, sincere forgiveness demands that we imitate God's mercy as fully as possible, regardless of our pride and stubbornness. I can't think of anything that has more potential for damaging a family or a group of friends or a church community than the inability to forgive and a preference for holding a grudge. Thirdly, forgiveness is an instrument of conversion, both for the one who receives forgiveness and for the one who is then able to offer it to others. The final chapter of this lesson takes us in another direction in terms of church order, this time dealing with the question of divorce and the sacrifices required to follow Jesus. So I'd like to set the stage a bit. In all that he did, Jesus reveals an underlying desire to restore the original plan of the Creator. Because he is so intimately connected with the will of the Father, Jesus is the authoritative interpreter of the law. And so the Pharisees, in their never-ending attempt to test Jesus' loyalty to the Mosaic law, question him about whether divorce should be allowed for any reason. Jesus upholds the ideal of indissolubility of marriage because it is the will of the Creator that two become one. You'll recall from Genesis what God has joined together, no human being must separate. He recognizes that Moses, who is always symbolic of the law, had allowed divorce because of stubbornness. Like the prophetic tradition, Moses acknowledged that Israel was unwilling to be taught and guided by God's word. 
The exception Moses offered was a nod to the common practice that husbands could initiate divorce for a number of reasons. Jesus, however, goes a step further than what the law allows and prefers to protect the design of God. In the process, he upholds the rights of a woman not to be divorced by her husband. The tone of absoluteness in Jesus' teaching is evident from the reaction of the disciples. This is a hard teaching. Perhaps it is better not to marry. Again, living a celibate life is not the ideal for every person, but is a gift, the result of a grace given to those who are called to that lifestyle. Every state of life has inherent difficulties, whether we're celibate for the sake of the kingdom, married within the church, or single. How frustrating, even depressing, it can be when we fail to live up to the ideal. But try to consider these failings in the context of the loving forgiveness of Jesus so evident throughout all four Gospels. We can choose to be paralyzed by our weakness or see in that weakness or failure the opportunity to grow in dependence on God's grace and direction. Upholding the ideal should never get in the way of extending loving concern and forgiveness. The final story of chapter 19 is about the rich young man who went away sad when Jesus asked him to give up his possessions. Did Jesus love the man any less because he seemed possessed by his wealth? I really don't think so. He was a good man who kept the commandments, even the command to love neighbor. But he sensed that he lacked something, and this prompted him to go to Jesus himself and ask, what do I still lack? Jesus asks him to abandon his wealth if he would be perfect. Perfect. A word that could be translated any number of ways. If you would be mature, if you would be complete, wholehearted. Jesus invited the young man to a new level of belief and faith. He acknowledged the value of the commandments, but Jesus kind of raised the bar a bit, and he held out something that would bear even more fruit. Jesus wanted the young man to shift his dependence from money to the Lord. The instruction to sell what you have and give it to the poor no doubt ignited this man's imagination for years to come. We're never told what happened to the man, whether he went away sad and was never fully able to let go of his possessions, whether his conversion continued to deepen and he eventually found a way to free himself of the power his possessions held over him. Matthew's gospel prompts us to examine our dearly held values and beliefs, to ask ourselves whether we're even willing to go deeper. What do you need to be free of in order to be radically dependent on God? What obstacles do I have that prevent me from following the Lord completely? Am I even willing to ask the question, as was the young man at the end of this week's lesson? If we rely on our own power and our own determination to rid ourselves of the persuasive pull of possessions, then we'll be disappointed. The good news is found in verse 26, where Jesus responds to the disciples who are on the verge of despair, and they ask him, who then can be saved? His answer is still our answer. For human beings, this, he says, giving up what we work for, detaching from false idols, this is impossible. But for God, all things are possible. This lesson begins and ends with the power of an honest and intimate relationship with the Lord. Whether in moments where we glimpse His glory or in moments when we offer up our failures, 
or in moments when more is asked of us than we ever imagined, we can count on the God of possibilities.